0: Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, for our sermon passage this evening, we're turning our attention to 1 Samuel 13. And that can be found starting on page 234, I believe, if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. Um, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel, so it's always good to offer just a quick review of where we are and where we're going. So you may remember, if you've been with us, that the last thing we heard in—or the last few things we heard in 1 Samuel— or that first Saul, King Saul, has already been anointed and revealed to be a king, king over all of Israel. Uh, the Lord had given his people, sadly, uh, the king that they demanded. They wanted a king like the nations, they remember, and in doing so they rejected God from being king over them. That's what God declared when they desired this king like the nations. And yet at the same time, God had not rejected his people. And In the last chapter, chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, we heard God address his people with something of a final word of warning as they prepare to walk forward in righteousness with this new king, King Saul. And yet, as we'll see in today's text, that even though God still doesn't give up on his people, he doesn't give up on his people, that he does announce that this new king, King Saul, was going to have a very short reign and a very short kingdom. Because his kingdom, as the events of 1 Samuel 13 unfold, we'll hear, is going to come to an end. And that's a development that will span chapters 13 through chapters 15 of 1 Samuel before eventually David is found and anointed to be the next king in Israel. So with that background in mind, let's turn our attention to 1 Samuel 13, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a longer text, but I'm going to read the entirety of it in full here. This is 1 Samuel 13, 1 through 23. As always, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. So hear now the word of the Lord. <laughs> Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude, they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with him with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah, to the land of Shuel, another company turns towards Beth Oren, and another company turned towards the border that looks down in the Valley of Zeboiim, towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare his mattock, his ox, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the maddocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord several years ago uh, back when laurie and i lived in florida we had to navigate anytime we wanted to drive out of town and go visit her parents uh, who live in orlando or just wanted to go down to the orlando area that was the next biggest city um, we often had to navigate toll roads wherever we went Um, you know often in traversing a, a big city if you don't want to crawl through bumper-to-bumper traffic and take forever to reach your destination, um, you can use toll roads as long as they're available. And there were and still are many of them that circuit the whole city of Orlando. Um, But of course, in taking the toll roads, you also have to pay the toll. You have to pay money in order to use those roads. That's the one rule that makes a toll road a toll road. And you get ticketed if you don't pay it. don't have the option or authority to not pay your tolls but occasionally there were circumstances that were unique to florida where even that most important rule about paying your tolls was suspended for a short period of time you see if there was ever a hurricane evacuation something that happened every few years the state tended to suspend for a time the collection of tolls in order that uh, the main highways didn't get too clogged up with traffic, they would make the toll roads free so that everyone could get out of town wherever they needed to go without a problem. You see, when a crisis like a hurricane hit, the state of Florida had the authority to suspend that ordinary rule, and they reasoned that it was both appropriate and necessary to do that. And nobody, at least to my knowledge, complained when the state of Florida did that. But when we turn to our text, understand that Israel finds herself, as it so often seems to be the case, in a period of crisis as well. You see, the Philistines, a foreign people who worshipped other gods, they have continued throughout 1 Samuel, including here, to exert their influence over Israel. And they've continued to muster this imposing militaristic force, both in terms of manpower and equipment, so that they could do their will virtually anywhere they wanted in the land of promise against Israel. Now, this in itself is a crisis, given what God had called Israel to do. Remember, he's called upon Israel previously to drive out people like the Philistines out of the land because a a holy people, the people of God, set in a holy place the, the land that God had given them could not dwell with an idol-worshiping people. They couldn't coexist with an unholy people in a holy place. But when the passage opens, this crisis of simply just living in the land with the Philistines and kind of being subject to their authority is ratcheted up one notch when Israel decides to finally do something about the Philistine problem, specifically We hear about Jonathan, Saul's son, who we're introduced to for the first time here in 1 Samuel. We hear how he provokes a war against the Philistines. And as a result, Israel is thrust into a different sort of crisis, one in which they now have to stand against the mighty armies armies of the Philistines with a wretched and outnumbered military force. And so how in the world is this going to go well for Israel? Well, with this new crisis before Israel, one in which they're now committed to an all-out war with the Philistines, we see how King Saul responds. And what we find is that when Saul is faced with an intense period of crisis, well, he takes it upon himself to suspend the rules that were given to him by the prophet Samuel, because as he sees it, this crisis is so dire that God's word, the word that was given to him through the prophet Samuel, it has to be set aside in order to deal with the crisis before him. Now Saul, of course, we're going to talk about this later, he doesn't have the authority to simply just suspend God's word. And in fact, as king, he's entrusted, as Israel's king was, with leading the nation according to God's word. But as he sees it, he has the authority to call an audible when he deems the circumstances warranted and as a result we'll find that that decision he makes carries tragic long-term consequences for him and for his kingdom but beyond saul and the specific historical circumstances that prompt his actions in our text this story also presses us to ask ourselves a few questions as well specifically how do we respond to God's word? And how do we relate to God when crisis hits? Does God's word, his instructions and his promises, do they take the back burner in moments like that? Do we feel the freedom to call an audible when God's word seems more like a barrier to overcome whatever issue we need to get through? How we answer that question is something that hangs over this entire text. And so our big idea with that in mind is a question, and the question is this, how do we respond when crisis hits? How do we respond when crisis hits? As we study this passage, we're gonna do it in three parts. Um, First, in verses one through seven, we're gonna hear about obedience and its cost, obedience and its cost. Second, in verses eight through 15, we're gonna hear about disobedience and its cost, disobedience and its cost. And then in the final part of our passage, verses 15 through 23, we're going to hear about desperation and no control. Desperation and no control. So obedience and its cost, disobedience and its cost, desperation and no control. Couldn't quite carry through the alliteration, but you get the point. All right, so let's start out with this first one. First, obedience and its cost. So when our passage opens in verse one, notice that we're given this curious introduction to Saul's reign in the esv the english standard version we read in verse one that quote saul lived for one year and then became king and when he had reigned for two years over israel saul chose three thousand men of israel now a lot has been written on this verse and if you're using another translation other than the esv your your translation might actually say something slightly different here um there are some issues perhaps with this first verse that we need to talk through Because first of all, we know that Saul didn't simply become king when he was one year old. He was actually a lot older than that when he became king. And second, the second line about two years is tricky. It's open to a few different translations, one of which suggests that Saul only reigned as king for two years, which also wasn't the case. He reigned a lot longer than that. And so what do we make of this opening line here? Well, I think the best way to understand it is that our author isn't making so much of a historical point in this opening line as much as he is making a theological point. Let me explain. You see, first, when the text says that Saul lived for one year and then became king, it's probably referring to the time between his anointing back in chapter 10 and, the current, and between that event and the current event that's about to unfold. Um, it's been one year since the anointing of Saul, since Saul took up the mantle of kingship. But it's also interesting, um, this phrase from another perspective too, because this phrase about living for one year is the same phrase that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the right age for a sacrificial animal. It may be then that this is a hint of judgment that's about to be executed upon Saul in short order. But after this phrase, we come to this expression that suggests something about Saul's reign being two years. And the best way to understand that is that the author of of 1 Samuel is offering us a perspective on Saul's reign from a divine perspective. As one commentator suggests, uh, Saul was king for much longer than two years, but only in the eyes of humans. In God's eyes, He would cease to be king after just two years on the throne it was after two years where god would reject saul from being king now this opening verse is quite difficult there are other ways it could possibly be translated and understood but assuming we're on the right track this opening verse colors kind of everything else in this passage that we hear about saul because it suggests before we get into any of the details that saul's reign would be a temporary reign And it would largely be a failure as well. And when we move beyond the opening verse, this kind of heading for the passage, and we consider the sequence of events, first leading up to this war with the Philistines, where we can start to see the cracks in Saul's kingdom form and why he was only able to reign for two years. So when we turn to the events that follow, we first hear how Saul begins to assemble his forces for war. Now, this is commendable. He's finally doing something about the Philistine problem that's been a thorn in the side of Israel forever, and that's good. He puts together this standing army of 3,000. He takes 2,000, while his son Jonathan commands another 1,000. The pieces, it seems, are finally falling into place to go out against the Philistines and drive them out of the land for good. But when the standing army is actually formed, who makes the first move? It's not Saul. It's Jonathan. Jonathan is the one who leads the attack, who initiates the attack, and then defeats this initial garrison of the Philistines. And it's only after Jonathan, his son, acts that Saul acts and summons men to come to Gilgal and prepare for this larger war. Now, maybe that Saul had given this command to Jonathan in the first place, and the people of Israel do credit that initial skirmish to to Saul. But as Dale Ralph Davis notes, these events should stir a question in our minds whether there's already, in the opening part of this passage, a big deficiency in Saul. Again, he wasn't the one who initiated this attack. It was Jonathan who initiated it. Was it because Saul hesitated? Well, we don't know. But it's, it's a question that the text leaves us with, and it's another question about the kind of king that Saul is. Nevertheless, give credit where credit is due. Saul, at least, is beginning to move in the right direction. He's preparing for war against the Philistines. That's good. He's beginning to move, it seems, towards obedience rather than than away from it. And and that's good. He's moving in the right direction, it seems. But as soon as Israel is committed to war, there's a problem. For one thing, the Philistines, they're about to muster a much more formidable force than Israel has. And then when additional troops on Israel's side would have been a welcome relief at this point, we find that the opposite happens. The people of Israel, they they run in the opposite direction. They hide themselves wherever they can. Some even flee across the Jordan River because they're terrified of having to face the medicine army like the Philistines. In a sense, Israel fired the first shot, but now that war has come, Israel is crumbling under the weight of the enormity of the task before them. And so it raises the question did israel did saul did they make a mistake here well no i don't think so rather what this sequence of events illustrates is that sometimes obedience to god and god's word carries a cost and that's true for us too understand that sometimes being obedient to jesus as christians may mean that we lose quite a bit in the process it may mean that we lose friendships or we lose status Or we lose treasures that are prized so dearly in the world sometimes obedience means that even our families will hate us and as the church around the world knows all too well sometimes obedience may even cost us our lives so when you think about what it means in your life to be obedient to jesus do you understand that faithfulness doesn't mean costlessness there are certain things that jesus calls us to be ready to lose for the sake of the kingdom But the good news is that even though Jesus calls us to do those things, he's not calling us into something that he didn't do himself. Because the scriptures proclaim, obedience in Jesus's estate as a servant meant that he was despised and hated in the world and then given up to the painful and shameful death of the cross. Obedience for Jesus in his state of a servant carried a great cost, but in paying that cost, he secured to us to himself, such that even when we're called to give up the most precious things to us, we can rest assured that we stand to gain so much more as children who have been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. So obedience, it carries a cost. It carried a cost for Jesus. It carries a cost, it seems, for Saul and Jonathan in, um, in our text as well. And then it raises the question, well, how is Saul and how are Jonathan going to respond when they're faced with paying this cost? Remember, they're being obedient in going out against the Philistines. They're paying a cost for that. So how are they going to respond next? Well, this leads to our next point. Second, <coughs> disobedience and its cost. Now, to set the context for us, beginning in verse 8 here, Understand that Saul had earlier been instructed by Samuel in a certain way. Saul had been instructed that when he would come to Gilgal, Samuel knew that he was gonna come to Gilgal, that Saul had to wait seven days for Samuel to come. And when Samuel arrived, it would be Samuel, not Saul, who would offer both a burnt offering and a peace offering. Those are two of the five main offerings, sacrificial offerings that were offered in Israel's sacrificial system. Samuel would do that, and then Samuel would also offer direction for the battle that lie ahead. You have to understand that one of the ways Israel's whole system differed from that of the nations was that Israel's king didn't have absolute authority to do whatever he wanted to do. Remember, he was a king in service to Yahweh, the great king. And that meant that in going to war, well, that was something that had to be directed by God through his prophets. But remember what happened earlier when Israel petitioned Samuel, give us a king like the nations. They wanted a king like the nations. And now in this text, well, Saul begins to act like a king like the nations. You see, king like the nations, well, they can do whatever they want to do. Because that kind of king doesn't see himself as accountable really to anyone. That's why historically, in many different cultures, kings have seen themselves and set themselves up as almost semi-divine figures. But for the Lord's king to walk in the same manner, that would carry serious consequences. And this is exactly what happens to Saul. We read that when the seventh day arrives and Samuel still hasn't shown up, Saul feels the pressure. Remember, Israel's no match, humanly speaking, for the Philistines. And now we read that the Philistine army is deployed and Israel's forces, they're scattering. And in the middle of this crisis, Saul feels the pressure and he feels like he has to subvert Samuel's authority. And so he arrogates to himself authority that he does not have. And he begins to offer these sacrifices so that he can simply get on with the battle ahead. Now, this is a big deal. And when Samuel arrives immediately after Saul offers the burnt offering, Boy well, tells him this was a big deal. You see, at the end of the day, Saul has an incredibly flawed view of who he is and a flawed view of who God is, too. Of himself, he thinks that he has authority, that he simply doesn't. The text even seems to suggest that Saul was the one offering this sacrifice, which was unlawful for a king to do. Kings didn't offer sacrifices that was the priests prerogative to do that and then Saul failed to view god as the great king who would fight for his people he's so panicked about going to war he forgets to remember how god has been the one throughout redemptive history who has fought for his people so when samuel comes on the scene what he does is he rebukes saul for what he did and then he highlights the fundamental problem was a problem lurking in Saul's heart. He says in verse 14, <clears throat> but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The implication in that rebuke is that Saul had not been a man to seek after God's own heart. That's why he felt the freedom to suspend God's word through Samuel. That's why he didn't think that this was really that big of a deal. And as a result, his disobedience carried a serious cost namely that Saul and his dynasty would cease to continue, and Saul would no longer be God's king in God's eyes. One of the takeaways from this text, I think, is that just as obedience, we talked about a moment ago, obedience carries a cost, disobedience sometimes carries an even steeper cost. In the case of Saul, his disobedience that sprang from a heart that didn't beat for God above all else meant that his kingdom would be ripped away from him. That's a big deal. But for us, the consequences of our disobedience can be just as dire. You know, one of the consequences is that sometimes, sometimes the more we become immunized towards disobedience or the lessening of God's standards, The more sin begets more sin begets more sin in our lives until what might have originally seemed like a minor infraction of God's word slowly morphs into bigger and bigger issues. And along the way, we become more and more numb towards holiness. Minor disobedience that we sometimes just write off or maybe even justify when we're in the pressure cooker of life can simply be just the first step in a pattern of laziness in our relationship with God. And so as you think about your own life, are there areas where God has said one thing, but expediency says something else? Are there places where you see God's word in maybe your more honest moments as more of a hindrance to happiness or success, rather than as the true source of happiness and flourishing in God's economy? Friends, don't write off even the seemingly minor things that God has commanded us, because disobedience carries a cost. Now, of course, it should also be said that the God we serve is a God of mercy, incredible mercy, which means that the consequences we bear for our sin are often so less than what our disobedience deserves. But again, the reason for that has nothing to do with God's indifference to our infractions. It has nothing to do with the fact that he doesn't care about sin or anything like that. It has to do with the fact that the Lord has provided for us a man after his own heart, Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ, the one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness perfectly, who, 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 who loved God's word and treasured God's word far more than we do, that we in our infractions and in our carelessness have been forgiven all of our sins. And yet in our sin, the Lord has given us a better king than Saul or David. He has given us this king, Jesus Christ, so that even in our disobedience, we would be held secure through Jesus's obedience, his active and passive obedience on our behalf. Now tragically, returning to our text, Saul made the decision he made, and now Israel finds herself in a desperate position with no control. And so this leads to our third point where we're looking at verses 15 through 23, desperation and no control. So remember that Saul made the decision he made back in verse eight, because he saw that his army was scattering. Remember, he had summoned Israel to fight against the Philistines, and he originally had 3,000 men ready for war. But rather than his numbers growing since that time, we come to find that after seven days in Gilgal, his numbers have dwindled some 80%. And at the end of verse 15, he looks around and he numbers those who are with him, and he discovers that now he doesn't have 3,000 men. He's only got 600. 600. To make matters worse, the Philistines have already begun their assault on Israel, and they have enough manpower, it seems, to deploy forces in every direction. We read that one company turns north, another company heads west, another moves southeast. The numbers are tragically not working in Israel's favor, and neither is their weaponry. Notice that the last thing we read is that the Philistines had already ensured prior to this that Israel would be at a severe disadvantage in their weaponry if they ever decided to take up arms against the Philistines. How? Well, the Philistines made sure there was no blacksmith in Israel. Anytime an Israelite needed to sharpen his farming tools, he was dependent on the Philistines. And there's not a chance the Philistines were going to help out the Israelites, if they came down to the Philistines and asked for them to sharpen their sword or their weapon of war, they weren't going to provide the Israelites with any weapons whatsoever. And so when the battle begins, the only Israelites who are equipped for war are Saul and Jonathan. Everybody else, it seems, just has farming equipment as they go into war. The desperate situation that they're in, it's reminiscent to what happened back in 1 Samuel 7, When the Philistines had Israel surrounded on every side and were ready to destroy them, only for the Lord to intervene at the last moment and throw the Philistines into confusion, ultimately leading to their defeat. In view of that event, perhaps this is what Saul and his small band of warriors hoped would happen again. After all, they'd be fooling themselves to think that they could handle the Philistine force on their own. They recognize, or at least if they don't, they have to recognize here their desperation and how they can't do a single thing in their own power to fix it. Things are dire and they have absolutely no control. You know, if you ever watch football, there are occasions, I think, when a team can get themselves into a similar kind of predicament at the end of a game. Well, let me explain. You see, when a football game reaches its final minutes and the losing team senses the urgency of the clock, you often find that they begin to pull out everything they can to win. They might go to the deep tracks of their playbook, they might start calling timeouts frantically, they might spike the ball to give themselves enough time, anything they can to give themselves the space and the time to get back in the game. Now sometimes those final minutes of a football game are really exciting when the game's on the line And yet this sense of urgency and the frenetic pace of play can be especially annoying when the losing team is down three or four touchdowns and they continue to play like they have a chance when in reality, the game's over and they just need to give up. Now, on the one hand, I get it. If you're that losing team, the the Dallas Cowboys, you don't want to embarrass yourself or or upset your fans. Um, But at some point as a spectator, I wish the losing team would just get in touch with reality, accept that they're gonna lose, and they can't control the inevitable and just give up. When you can't do anything to control your situation, why would you exert so much effort and toil pretending that you can? Now, when we think about Saul's next move in our passage, Understand that on his own, if he were to go against the Philistines with the force he has, he would be treading the same path as a losing football team down three or four touchdowns in the closing minutes of the game. But in his case, it would be quite literally a suicide mission. The stakes would be exponentially higher for Saul. If he were to fight this battle anyway, he might go down in history for his heroics, but he's not gonna win. Apart from the Lord's intervention, this desperate situation is hopeless. And Saul has no control at all to do a thing about it. Now, next time we're in 1 Samuel, we're going to study the conclusion to this battle in 1 Samuel 14. But for now, I think this final section of our passage invites us to consider how we respond when we sense control slipping through our fingers, especially when we're in crisis and all we want to do is just take the bull by the horns and direct things the way that we want them to go, but we just can't. How do we respond in those situations? And maybe for some of you, when you're faced with such a dilemma, maybe some of you just shut down, refuse to talk to anyone, or do anything other than retreat into things that you can control. Or maybe others of you, maybe you get angry, angry at the world, and you lash out at anyone or anything, hoping that that may restore some sense of control over the situation or over people. Now, we don't yet know how Saul responds to these new developments. Chapter 13 ends, again, without any commentary on Saul's attitude or response. But the only reasonable thing for him to do at this point would be to throw himself on the mercy of God and petition the Lord for help. Now, Saul should have done that earlier, to be sure. But the good news that we can take with us is that even when we find ourselves and maybe in maybe an analogous or similar situation as Saul was, inept to control our crises, understand that there is one who is in control. The good news of the gospel is that the sovereignty of God doesn't cease. The goodness of God towards his people never comes to an end. And even when God calls us to walk through the pressure cooker for a time, he doesn't leave us alone understand that we might not have nearly as much we don't have nearly as much control as we think we do but we do serve a God who meets us in our desperation and who never loses us in it and so as we wrap up our study of first Samuel 13 this evening let me leave us with this closing question are you whether in crisis or not are you pursuing God's heart Now when asking that question, recognize that the only one who ever sought God's heart perfectly was Jesus Christ. But as the people who have been given the spirit of Christ, do you seek to conform yourself more and more to things that are good and true according to his word? Does your heart beat for God and his kingdom purposes above all else, or is your heart sometimes divided in its loyalties and loves? And how does your answer to that question differ when you think about your response in times of crisis When crisis hits, are you tempted to call an audible in your relationship with Christ? Or do you instead recognize that you have no control and then lean into the promises and the hope of the gospel? Again, are you pursuing God's heart? And with that question in mind, take comfort, brothers and sisters, that the only reason we can pursue the heart of God is because God has pursued us in Christ and adopted us out of his own free mercy as his children. So, friends, pursue God's heart, because God in Christ has already pursued you and me. Pray with me. Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We see in this text the failures of Saul, why Saul is rejected for what he did. But we also see in this text, Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, a mirror into our own hearts. We see how sometimes we're too cavalier towards your word as well how when crisis hits in our own lives sometimes rather than listening to your word we plot uh, paths of our own according to our own wisdom rather than the wisdom of your word lord would you have mercy upon us for the times when we try to take life into our own hands rather than resting upon you and your mercy and would you lead us and renew us by your spirit that we might continue to walk in truth and walk in the light whether in times of crisis or whether everything is going well in our lives. In whatever circumstances, Lord, would you be glorified and honored in how we walk and follow Jesus our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.